We'll be in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12 this morning. Um, we announced last week that uh, Christian apologist Ken Ham was going to speak at a Kindred Community Church on a Thursday night. There are some of us uh, here from Cornerstone who went to the event, and on that night he told about uh, how he was scheduled to speak at the University of Central uh, uh, Oklahoma the previous year, but how his speaking engagement was canceled. So I did a little research on that. I'm going to read a little bit about what, what, what happened there. And I don't think it'll be very surprising to you. So the, he, here's a little report from Oklahoma News 4. An event at University of Central Oklahoma that was supposed to feature a Christian speaker was suddenly canceled, raising some questions. Ken Ham, well-known president of Answers in Genesis, a ministry dedicated to helping Christians defend their faith, was slated to speak next month on campus. The president of UCO, University of Central Oklahoma student body, said he was pressured to call off the, off the event by a group that supports LGBTQ rights. Lindsay Churchill, PhD, is the director of the Women's Research Center and LGBTQ plus student center. Her group was not happy when they heard students' funds would be used to bring ham and what they believed were his anti-gay views to campus. They didn't know that their funds were paying for the speaker, who they see as homophobic, was able to come to this school without them knowing. Churchill said, I think that's the biggest issue. It was that they disagreed with his viewpoints. Representatives from the center complained to student leaders, and ultimately, the speech was canceled. Now, the fact that this speech at a public university being canceled I don't think that that cancellation really comes as a surprise to any of us. Ken Ham is outspoken on the Bible's definition as, of marriage as between one man and one woman. We're not surprised because we know that if we speak about our biblical convictions, as we seek to act out our biblical worldview, we will find ourselves in conflict with this world. We could find ourselves in conflict for any number of things. It could be we find ourselves in conflict with the world because of what we won't do. I think that this often happens in our high school and college years. Because you won't look at what your friend wants to show you on their phone that you know you shouldn't. You won't laugh at certain jokes at work. Perhaps at work you won't fudge numbers. Or you won't skirt around safety laws. You won't wear modest clothes. You won't participate in other religious events. And for these, you find yourself in conflict with the world for things that you won't do. We could also find ourselves in conflict for things that we will do, like discipline our children according to God's word. Or perhaps something controversial like leaving a demanding, promising, career, excuse me, to care for children at home. We can also find ourselves in conflict with the world because of what you believe. The marriage is between one man and one woman, or that sex outside of marriage is wrong. It could also be because of what you say, and this is, of course, the overflow of what we believe, that you warn people of oncoming judgment, and that you urge them to flee to Christ. And for all of these things, we find ourselves in conflict with the the world. And in that, we're not alone. The early church in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the Apostle, Peter, the Apostle Peter was writing to these, to these churches. They, too, were ostracized as they were in conflict with, with the world. They were slandered. They were maligned, as First Peter says. They were out of place, and they were viewed as offensive. They used to fit in. First Peter 4.3 talks about how they used to fit in. It says in 1 Peter 4.3 how they used to pursue a course of, sen of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter says in all this, they, those who don't have Christ, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. They'd gone through a change. They used to be one of them. And now they were mocked. They were made fun of. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, which we looked at last time we were in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter encouraged the shamed saints with who they are in Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 describes them. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And here's the purpose. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Both are privilege, that part that describes who we are, and our purpose of proclaiming his excellencies, what we are to do, propel us into conflict with the world, both who we are and what we are to, to do. So today, in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, we're going to see how we are to live while in conflict with this world so that God is glorified when Christ returns. How are we to live while we are in conflict with this world so that Christ is glorified when he returns? I'm going to read 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. In verse 4, really, Peter begins, and we've already looked at these verses, begins describing why these churches were going through shame for being connected with Christ and then explaining the honor that they had for their union with Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. In coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious or honored cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be put to shame. Verse 7, this precious value, this honorable value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, verse 9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you um, for these kind words uh, as, the, as the Apostle Peter spoke to these brothers and sisters long ago as beloved. And we uh, understand that we, like them, are strangers here. We are sojourners, resident aliens, visitors, Lord, that this is not our final resting place. And we come here this, this morning even fatigued. Lord, we are fatigued by the war that we fight against our soul, and we are fatigued by the increasing oppression we feel from a combined lost world. I know that many of us feel that from individual family members, maybe some who mocked us when we first came to Christ, who rejected us. And Lord, we increasingly hear that in the news and media as we see Christians being marginalized. Father, we are in conflict, and so we look for wisdom today from your word, how we are to live while in conflict, so that you are glorified when your son returns. Please give us wisdom as we listen, and give me wisdom as I speak. Help us to be transformed uh, by your word. Lord, we're going into another week, and we trust that your grace is sufficient for this upcoming week, but we do want to be pleasing to you. So please give us your wisdom. Jesus' name, amen. As we looked in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, the apostle Peter began to explain why they were shamed while encouraging the saints that they were honored by God. In verses 11 to 12, the apostle Peter begins a new section. It's a new section of his letter, but really it continues on with a common theme. 
we saw in the first chapter. The common theme is that we are aliens and strangers. In this bigger section, Peter is starting to explore how we are to live while we go through suffering for our commitment to Christ. We saw in the second half of chapter 1 that Peter gives broad instructions about how they were to live as sojourners and as aliens. Broad instructions about where their hope was to be and their holiness and how they were to conduct their lives in fear, knowing that they were going to be judged by God. Knowing that they were to have a, a... uh, sincere love for the brethren. They were broad instructions at the end of chapter 1. We're going to see as chapter 2 continues into chapter 3 that the instructions are, are, more, are more specific to groups of people. To them as citizens, we're going to look at next week in verses 13 to 17. Appreciate your prayers as we think about that. Verses 18 to 19, how they were to act as slaves. We're going to see in the beginning of chapter 3 how they were to act as spouses. How they were to go through suffering for righteousness' sake. But today, verse 11 through 12, launches into that bigger discussion that will be continued to the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, the Apostle Peter tells the church how we are to live while in conflict with the world so that God is glorified by our opponents when Christ returns. So that God is glorified by our opponents when Christ returns. And we're going to see exactly how that's going to happen as we read. We're going to see two kinds of conflict here. And the first is the internal conflict in verse 11. We're going to begin with the internal conflict of verse 11, if you're taking notes. First, it's the internal conflict. Peter begins this new section in verse 11 by calling them beloved. He expresses his affections for his brothers and sisters. We really don't know anything about how much he knows these churches. We don't know if he's ever visited these churches, but in Christ, they are his beloved. And as we think about whether the saints in, in the Czech Republic or in Malaysia, our brothers and sisters who worshipped earlier this day, are they our beloved? Sweet to hear Peter call them beloved. And then he's going to exhort them. He has an appeal to them. I urge you, he says in the beginning of verse 11, I urge you, I exhort you, I beseech you. Sounds archaic, but it has the right force to it. It's not just encouraging them. He's pleading with them. And he gives them the basis of why he's exhorting them. He exhorts them as aliens and strangers. That word alien there is from the Greek word to live beside. To live as a resident alien in a place that's not your permanent home. To live, te- to live in a place for a temporary amount of time. Without the full rights of citizens. We saw this word in 1 Peter 1.17 when Peter described them during their time of stay here on earth. It's not permanent. There's, it's a time of stay. As aliens and strangers, which is a very similar word in meaning, a resident alien, we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, as the letter opened, to those who reside as aliens, or in the ESV as exiles. The world is foreign to us as aliens and strangers. We are aliens and strangers here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of God's holy nation. We're going to feel out of place here. We're going to feel uncomfortable here. And we should. We worship different gods. We worship the one true God and not the gods of this world. Both terms, alien and strangers, is used of Abraham in Genesis 23, 4. Perhaps it was in Peter's mind. It says in, Abra- in, in Genesis 23, 4, Abraham says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And it's after his wife Sarah passed away and he had no place, no, no bit of land in which to bury his wife. He had been living in the land of Canaan as a nomad. That's what it is to be a stranger and an alien. Peter uses these terms, strangers and aliens, because of that truth we've been looking at in verses 4 through 2, I mean 4 through 10. It's because of our allegiance with Christ and our union to him. It's because of our purpose in this world of offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's because we belong to God as that holy nation, as that royal priesthood. 
It's because of our proclamation that we proclaim his excellencies. And it must be said that we will feel more comfortable here if we're not proclaiming the excellencies of our God. It is easier to fit in if we don't tell others about the greatness of our God. The Apostle Peter urges them, because they are strangers and aliens, to abstain, to keep away. Now, perhaps you would expect him to say, now keep away from the godless pagans around you. Isolate yourself. Keep your children away from those who are opposed to Christ. Of course, we want to watch the influences on children's lives. But instead, Peter calls them to focus on an internal conflict. He knows what they're going through. He knows that they are being criticized and mocked, maybe excluded from the public marketplace. Maybe they're suffering financially. Maybe some of them are facing prison. He knows what they're going through. And where does he begin? And you can imagine, if you were writing a letter to those pastors in China who are being interned, beloved, as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lust. Abstain from fleshly lust. That's kind of surprising, right? In the midst of all the conflict that they're going through, he tells them, look inside yourself. The New American Standard has fleshly lust. ESV has the passions of the flesh. It's these desires, these longings, these cravings of the flesh. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you have new life, if he has given you new life because you've put your faith in him and all of your affections belong to him, the flesh is that defeated part of us, the part of us that has been crucified with Christ, but that part of us which still somehow calls out. We know it's dead, but we can hear its voice from the grave. Feed me. Satisfy me. Listen to me and I'll make you happy is what our flesh cries out. Just one more. Stare into the mirror. Be obsessed with what you see there, whether your worthlessness or your excellence. Our flesh cries out, kneel at my throne and offer me what I crave. That is what that, that old person inside of us does. It has these passions and these urges. Previously, Peter's already spoken against this in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. And so we can see in chapter 2, he's really working out some themes he's already begun at the end of chapter 1. As obedient children, he said, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Don't mold yourself to those former lusts. Don't be molded by your old passions. And we can ask ourselves, what is it our flesh craves? Galatians 5, 19 to 21, the Apostle Paul helps with that. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, 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 in, are, in, are immorality, excuse me, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the deeds of the flesh. That is what our flesh craves. 1 John 2, 16 to 17, and 1 John 2, 16, he summarizes what our flesh craves. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Our flesh craves acceptance and success. Our flesh craves acceptance and success. And this is why sometimes we will hide Christ from those who need him. It's why we will hide our sin from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to keep up appearances. Our flesh craves that we would indulge itself with so many acceptable pleasures and, 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 and okay possessions that you find your appetite for God squeezed out. It just wants to be pleased, just fed some more so that God is marginalized in your life, so that you have to find a box of time called a quiet time. Not that there's anything wrong with setting apart a portion of the day, but that's not to keep God at bay. 
That's just because we want to launch our hearts into worship. Our flesh craves the independence that's promised by financial security. It craves the isolation from brothers and sisters in Christ because we want to be hidden and not be known. These are the lusts of the flesh which wage war against the soul, Peter says. These fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. As one commentator writes, this verse is instructive because it informs us that those who have the spirit are not exempt from fleshly desires. And that is encouraging, right? We who are in Christ Jesus do have these fleshly desires. We long for him to return because then they will be eradicated. But for now, we have them. But that doesn't mean we don't know him. It means we have to abstain from them because they are warring against our soul. See, they are trying to do all that we can. That these, the, the, the old man with these, with these desires is trying to do all that it can to defeat our soul. To win the battle for our affections. To, if possible, shipwreck our faith. To isolate us from obedience to Jesus Christ. To make us until we're comfortable with ignoring God's laws. We don't even think about it anymore. Till our consciences are seared. That is the kind of warfare our flesh is fighting. Our warfare, the flesh fights with this warfare so that we would be drunk on sin and pleasure to the point of that Christ's superiority is obscured. We don't even see how great he is. Our flesh wants us to worship at the altar of self. That is the kind of warfare that's being waged. Your greatest enemy, the threat to your soul, is not external. It is not culture. It is not legislation. It is your flesh. It's not ISIS. It's not a communist state if you're in China. Persecution will not destroy your soul. But sin, unrepented of, can infect it. Now we're not talking about whether someone who's truly saved can lose their salvation. We know that that's impossible. The person who is saved will continue saved. And yet, Peter's describing this reality that our flesh is waging war against us. Our flesh does not want us to persevere in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering will not shatter your faith. But suffering can, I mean, but selfishness can erode it. The dangers within. Paul describes the person who lives according to the flesh in Romans 8.13. If you live, maybe this verse 14, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now he was convinced of better things of them, that they had the mind of the spirit. That they were living according to the spirit, but the one who lives according to the flesh will die. And that's what our flesh wants, to reign. So how is it that we abstain from these war-waging passions of the flesh? What is it war to do? What does abstaining look like? Should we get out our slogans from the 80s and just say no? That's part of it. It really is. Romans 6, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Say no. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have the ability to say no to your flesh. It says in verse 13 of Romans 6, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You have to choose to say no to sin and yes to obey. But that's not all. We have to say no. We also have to live by faith. We have to live by faith in the gospel. We have to live by faith in all of the promises of God. That's what walking by the Spirit is. It's living in dependence on God's word, on the goodness of his commands, on his grace to us in Christ Jesus, Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We have to walk by the Spirit submitting to God's promises to us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take some saying no. It's going to take walking by faith. It's going to take us disciplining our body. 
1 Corinthians 9.27, and I do think this is talking about saying no to sin here. Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Context, I think he's talking about being disqualified as a Christian, not just for ministry. He's saying, I'm going I'm, I'm to discipline this flesh. Flesh, get back. Get down, flesh. And so I worry about this in my life. I worry about it in our lives. It is so easy in this world today to have so much pleasure that might not even be wrong, right? Not even sinful pleasure. There's just so much of it that's so easy just to be run by pleasures. Do we ever just deny ourselves so that we can say, yes, Lord, again, it's not that pleasure's wrong, but is it over-dominating our senses? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it just squelching our appetite for the Lord? That in comparison, he's like, well, I could be with the Lord, but TV's just so entertaining, Instagram is so stimulating. We have to fight fire with fire. I love 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Loving the Father is exclusive of loving the world and the things in the world. A preacher in the 1800s, Thomas, Thomas Chalmers, talked about the expulsive power of a religious affection. A religious affection. Love for God expels love for other things. If our hearts are filled with the love of God the Father and God the Son, only possible through His Spirit working in us, if our hearts are filled with that love, then there's no room for other loves. So we have to fight fire with fire with a deeper love, a superior love to the Father as we abide with Him throughout the day. As we hide his word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. As our desires are transformed through meditation. So we have to say no. We have to live by faith in God's promises. We have to discipline our body. Fight fire with fire. Have the superior love to the Father. And we have to take God's warning seriously. Your flesh is waging war against you. It wants to master you. It wants to isolate you from relationship with the Father. Our flesh is as deceitful as that creepy man luring children into a van with candy. It is as silent as an assassin. It is as violent as a barbarian. It's as persistent and dogged as a pack of wolves. And it's as present with us as the air we breathe. Look in the mirror and it's right there beneath the surface. It's waging war against us. See, our greatest enemy is internal, not external. How much time do you spend hearing, I mean, and whether we as Christians or we hear other Christians bemoaning the state of America, how much time do we say, are you waging war against your soul? Waging war against the fleshly lust. How often do we fear after hearing the morning news and ignore the state of our souls? We worry about the dangers outside our doors and disregard the ones within our hearts. Peter urged them, as sojourners and aliens who are going through real persecution, to focus on the internal conflict. But he was also aware that they were facing an external conflict too. And he wanted to instruct them in how they are to have these relationships in this world. How, how are we to live as we are being persecuted? So first we looked at the internal conflict. I bet you saw this coming. This is the external conflict. In verse 12. The first ver uh, word in verse 12 is keep. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. But that keeping is not independent of verse 11. And I know that, that there's a period after verse 11. There's a capital K in the beginning of verse 12. And that's fine. The, the, the translator is doing that to bring out that this word has a command force here. That we, it's, it's an imperative force. This is something we're to do. We're supposed to be keeping our behavior excellent. But keeping expresses a little bit 
better. That this, verse 12, is connected to verse 11. That this is an aspect of abstaining from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, keeping your behavior excellent. We cannot do one of these without the other. We can't keep our behavior excellent without abstaining from fleshly lust. He describes our behavior. It's our conduct, our way of life, our everyday walk. We saw it in verse 15 of chapter 1. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Peter calls for that quality of our behavior to be excellent, to be honorable, good, noble, praiseworthy, blameless. That was to be the quality of their behavior. And they were supposed to have this excellent behavior among the Gentiles. Now, Peter's not just speaking about those who are non-Jews. The audience he was writing to was non-Jews. But he just used language of Israel to describe how they were God's people. And now he describes to those who aren't God's people as Gentiles, as pagans. He doesn't call them to have this excellent behavior out on a commune by yourself, isolated from the world. Or only inside, and we homeschool, but only inside your homeschool houses. The excellent behavior was to be among the Gentiles. There was an audience for this excellent behavior. How many times have you heard Sadly, shame but brought upon the church of Jesus Christ when God's people's behavior is not excellent. I think we hear about most about pastors who are disqualified because of their public, uh, their, their, their public position. But it can happen at work for anyone who claims to be a Christian or neighborhoods. When saints give in to coveting and stealing. When saints give in to pride and they cover up their sins. When saints give in to lust and commit adultery, it would, it would be easier to say, oh, well, those people weren't really saved. But we know brothers and sisters who are saved still fall into those sins. And Christ is shamed because of those sins. Only by abstaining from fleshly lust can we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, our standard of what is excellent comes from God's word. It doesn't come from a shifting moral standard. See, excellence and goodness is not determined by a world apart from God. And I think that, 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 that this is an important question when we think about this verse. When it says, keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, is it that they see it and they see it as excellent? Now, of course, there are times when our moral excellence is approved of by the world. But there's also times when our moral excellence is found repulsive by the world. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. Our excellence has to be determined by God's word. It is the overflow of us having a consistent biblical worldview of us taking his command seriously. We should be concerned about how we are viewed by the world, not to the point of hiding and not proclaiming his excellencies, but, but here's a few verses that talk about our reputation in the world. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, and that idea of quiet is restful. It doesn't mean that you, you, you don't proclaim the gospel. But you're not a troublesome life. Lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. We should be hardworking. Conduct yourselves in Colossians 4.5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. 1 Timothy 3.7. He's, he's talking about the qualifications of elders. He must have a good reputation with those outside the world so that he will not fall into reproach into the snare of the devil. We should be concerned about how the world is perceiving our excellent actions. But that doesn't mean to the point that we define our goodness by what the world defines. Peter follows this command for excellent conduct with a so that. 
in the middle of verse 12, we see why. Although, I'm going to read the rest of verse 12, and then we'll take it part, part by part. So that, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The ultimate end result is that they would glorify God in the day of visitation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's follow along with his train of thought here. So that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, when they speak evil of you, when they defame you, when they call you an evildoer, in the ancient Greek world or, or in the Roman world, the church was accused of evil doing. Sometimes it was because of their resistance to Roman conventions. Sometimes it was because their worldview was just so different. Sometimes it was because of their missionary activity. Sometimes, as we saw in 1 Peter 4, it's because of what they didn't do. The definition of evildoer is going to change from age to age, depending upon how that age suppresses God's truth. In the ancient world, evildoing was not participating in in idolatry. It was not participating in emperor worship. So you were an evildoer. In a Muslim country, Christians are called evildoers because of their blasphemy and their apostasy. In China, Christians are accused of evildoing, of inciting subversion against the state power. Today, Christians in America are considered evildoers. We're called evildoers, in a sense, for not participating in pleasures which God forbids. And we may not be called evildoers because of what we don't do, but we are called uppity, or maybe smor- like moral snobs, goody two-shoes. Really, deep down, they're calling us evildoers. We're called evildoers for believing in what God says is right and wrong. And they have words like calling us that we are, judge- that we are judgmental or homophobic. Or misogynistic because we believe that abortion is wrong. They are calling us evildoers. We're called evil for proselytizing. For evangelizing is the biblical word. Who are you to tell others what is right and wrong? And I know not all of these are straight out you evildoers. But it's lurking behind all of those accusations. We're called evil for following God's instructions on parenting. We're called child abusers for teaching them what is right and wrong or disciplining them. Of course, we are not being okay with true child abuse, but Christians are called child abusers. They will throw all kinds of accusations against us, from insulting jabs to criminal charges, and we see that more and more. Lawsuits because you won't bake someone a cake. So Peter's saying that as you keep your conduct excellent, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them. Paul contrasts their accusations with their observations. The word observe has the idea as they view you, as they inspect you, and it has the idea of intentional looking and looking over time. He says that the the Gentiles, the pagans, those without God, are intentionally watching your good deeds. Their good conduct. It's the same word good that we saw as as excellent in the same verse. Keep your behavior good or honorable or excellent. Your good, your honorable, your excellent deeds. And the idea is that those who are having, are making accusations against you, those who are slandering you, are wondering as they observe, they know you're wrong, but why is your life so beautiful? Why is your life bringing forth good? Why is there good in the midst of what they know is evil doing? They hate what you hold to, and yet your life is appealing. They would expect such perversity of believing that how could you believe that a good God would send people to hell and yet they see the beauty of your families of your sacrificial living of your generosity of your good deeds of your kind speech of the fact that you never complain and you are thankful at work 
Like, these things don't match up. Peter's no doubt thinking of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The lost world, those without Jesus Christ, are observing your good deeds. Now, and, and I said I'd come back to this. Good here is an interesting concept, right? Whose standards is that good? Is that by the world's standards or is that by God's standards? And we know in God's grace, and this, this is true around the world, that there is overlap as people are made in God's image between what God considers good and what other people consider good, even people who don't know the, the Lord. People value hospitality. People value generosity. People value sacrifice. People value kindness. People value service. So that might be the beginning of them seeing your good deeds. But ultimately, these good deeds are going to be those which are in conformity to God's command, to our biblical foundation. When they see that consistency of doctrine and deed, of principle and practice, of affection and actions that are disturbing to them. I mean, they love your generosity and your willingness to help them move. But then you sit down and have a meal with them in which you say you're concerned for their eternal destiny. And that, that, that's troublesome. How could this goodness come along with this evil doing? You're different than the caricature in their head. And let's be clear about this, and I've been thinking about this. Evangelism is a good deed. Evangelism is a good deed. We can't leave evangelism off of this list of good deeds. Because let me ask you, if there was a blind man who's about to walk onto the railroad tracks, do I do a good deed to usher him off to the side? Do I? Yeah. Well, what if someone who's suicidal is jumping on the tracks as a train is coming? Do I do a good deed to rescue that man? Even if he wants to die? Yes, the answer is yes. So, when we evangelize, are we doing a good deed? Yes. And that is consistent with our life. We can't leave this good deed off of this verse here because the world doesn't like it. It is a good deed to warn people of danger. It is a good deed. I mean... It's a very small good deed when you come into work and say, hey, there's donuts on the, on the back counter. It's a small good deed, right? You can eat the donuts yourself. A very small. How much infinitely greater is it to say, I have tasted of Jesus Christ and he's wonderful. He is the light of this world. He is the bread of life. Come and you can take of him too. That is a good deed to point people to the ultimate goodness. So we cannot let the goodness of our good deeds be defined by the world's morality. We can't buy into this, oh, I just do good deeds and let the talk somehow come at some time. Goodness is defined by God. The end of verse 12 describes how the so that ends. That they would glorify God in the day of visitation. That is where this so that is going to. This is the end goal of our excellent conduct, of our good deeds when we're slandered, that they would glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, this day of, of, of visitation, commentators talk about this, and maybe you have the same question. Is this day of visitation a good or bad thing? And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it talked about God visiting his people. It could be either. It could be visiting to rescue or visiting to, to a judge. I mean, really, if you think about it, if God knocks on your door, uh, whether you're obeying him or not lets you know if that visit is a good or bad thing. And I don't think that we really have to choose between them. The focus already has been, again, 1 Peter 1 is going to influence 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 1 has already talked in verse 7 of chapter 1, verse 13 of chapter 1, about the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think this is the day of visitation, when Christ returns. And Christ's returns will be salvation for those who are his people, but it will be damnation for his, em for his enemies. 
And which are you today? Are you his people or his enemies? Have you been saved through faith in him? Or have you been rejecting his lordship? Is he your king? Have you gone to him saying, Lord, I need to be saved? Have you put your faith in his sacrifice on your behalf? Is he your only hope? Then that day of visitation is good news for you. And that's what Peter's hope is for other Gentiles. That they would join in glorifying God on the day of visitation. And there are two potential ways to think about this glorifying God. One is kind of that the Gentiles, those without the Lord, are going to have kind of a, a begrudging admission. When, when Jesus comes back, that these uh, Gentiles are going to say, huh, well, I guess I'm going to have to glorify God here. You guys really were pleasing him. But I don't think that that's the picture here. In Scripture, glorifying God characterizes those who are saved. In Acts 13, 48, describes how the Gentiles, upon hearing that God opened up salvation to them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Romans 15, 9 describes the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. It describes those who refuse to glorify God as, as those who aren't repentant, like proud Herod in Acts 12, 23, or Revelation 15, 9, those who are judged are those who do not repent so as to give him glory. In Scripture, glorifying God is an evidence of salvation. And so that's the second view. It's not some kind of begrudging admission where they have to say, yes, God, you were right. These really were your people. But instead, that they glorify God at the return of Christ because they have placed their faith in Christ. Where the day of judgment has become to them the day of deliverance. Where they are eager for God to knock on their door to see Christ's face. They glorify God in their worship. But beloved, the lost will only glorify God on the day of visitation if we proclaim his excellencies. No one will become his worshiper only by watching our deeds. The good news is heard, not seen. It's good news. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. For this to happen, for the Gentiles to glorify God in the day of visitation, it's going to take us to have consistency in our lives. Where our good deeds are matching our gospel. Where our good deeds are overflowing in the proclamation of the gospel. See, Peter's battle plan for dealing with this conflict, it wasn't politics it wasn't letter writing, it wasn't campaigns, it wasn't protest, but it was consistency. It was our words matching our actions and our deeds matching our doctrine. Our warfare within against sin leading to external excellence. Warfare within leading to external excellence. That was Paul's plan, I mean Peter's plan here. To see the Gentiles glorify God. I began talking about Ken Ham. He was ultimately invited back uh, to, to the University of Central o Oklahoma by the president, Don Betts. He was invited back as part of a two-day event on free speech. But he, he, he was allowed to give his talk. I think we all know that that will not be the only case of this in America in the upcoming years, or at least if things seem to be on the trajectory that they're going. We may be someday excluded from public discourse. We may be fined for our unwillingness to compromise. We may be imprisoned for our good deeds, including sharing the gospel. We don't know. We are heading toward a future filled with conflicts. We must face it even as our brothers and sisters around the world do it this day, abstaining from fleshly lust and keeping our behavior excellent with a purpose that those opposed to us, that those who are taking part in persecution will be the same ones who are glorifying God alongside us at the day of visitation. Let's pray. 
Father, I uh, recognize that it is an interesting uh, world that we live in in America where we have so many uh, rights and responsibilities that come with them. Next week, we're going to talk more about what it means to be good citizens. And uh, um, these are difficult topics to know when to write letters and, and, and how to be engaged in public discourse when we're given these freedoms. And yet, Lord, we look at what uh, Peter calls us to here and what the commands are. And we pray, Father, that we would take seriously really what our focus is. And our focus, our biggest threat is not external, but internal. So, Lord, I do pray that we would be taking seriously your command to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against our soul. Pray, Lord, that you'd be giving us wisdom even today as we talk. Lord, what a humbling question to ask our brothers and sisters we're walking with. For those of us married, our spouses, what fleshly lust do you see I need to abstain from? Lord, we ask you for wisdom as we examine this question. We pray, Father, that this message wouldn't just be done this morning, but it would launch us into reflection in this upcoming week. Lord, that we would be wise as to how our, our, our deceitful flesh, that old remaining man, how it wages war. We'd maybe even question some of um, the pleasures that are distracting us. Lord, I pray that you would be preparing us uh, to live excellent lives, morally upstanding lives. I pray, Father, that you would help us not just to have that uh, defined by the world, or the world would define that as, as, as being a great neighbor with green grass who lends a cup of sugar and um, doesn't cheat on taxes, maybe. Lord, we want to be more than that. We want to have excellent behavior defined by your commandments. We want to take your commands seriously in every area of our lives, in our roles as husband and wives, as our roles as workers, as our roles as parents, as children. We want to take your word seriously and do difficult work, and we want to take seriously as well what it is to do good deeds uh, with those who are lost. Lord, what does it mean for us to do good deeds in our neighborhoods and workplaces? And, and I think the answer is obvious, Lord, whether we can do those good deeds without warning, without pleading, without pointing to Christ. So give us boldness, Lord. Help us to be consistent people, Lord. I pray that you would help us not prevent the lust of the flesh, acceptance and approval. Keep us from gospel conversations. We pray for lots of wisdom. We could sense that maybe we're going to need increasing wisdom in the upcoming uh, years, generations. We thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, living here is increased pressure, and we pray, Lord, that it would lead to more Gentiles glorifying you on the day of visitation. In Jesus' name, amen.